0: So on behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to the January 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. So my guest today is Dr. Bruce Davidson. He's clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. He'll be discussing his clinical commentary, the association of direct thrombin inhibitor anticoagulants with cardiac thrombosis. Bruce, thanks for joining us today.
1: Sure, happy to be here. Thank you, Kyle.
0: Okay, well let's 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 jump right in. Let's start off with kind of the the you know to get our listeners immediately uh, in If the title alone wasn't enough, the, your title kind of clearly states it: the direct thrombin inhibitor anticoagulants with a risk for cardiac thromboses. Um, that's, I mean, wow, you know. So fill us in. What's the data? That's a, it's a it's a very clear title.
1: Well, the uh, I'll, I'll tell you first the conclusion is that uh, within the next couple months at most, uh, I believe patients should come off to Bigotran, Pradexa, and there may be 20 to 30,000 prescriptions filled a week. Uh, it ought to come off hospital formularies and hospital for routine use, and hospitals should stop using Bivalirudin, which many of them do routinely for uh, percutaneous uh, cardiac procedures. Uh, the data for saying that is now a wealth of studies, which I list in my article, which show that uh, when you compare patients uh, who've received uh, bivalirudin for uh, acute coronary insufficiency instrumentation versus heparin, that uh, there's a increased incidence of stent thrombosis, the number needed to harm uh, is between 50 and 150, wow. and that... Uh, when you look at dabigatran, uh, pradaxa, uh, for patients with atrial fibrillation, of whom there, are I don't know, four million in the U.S. anticoagulated. Plus, add the patients who, who take uh, pradaxa for pulmonary embolism or deep vein thrombosis. That the, uh, the number needed to harm there is somewhere between uh, 100, 150, and uh, and 400. Uh, just by comparison as a reference uh, when viox was taken off the market by merck uh, what they found was the number needed to harm was around 239 after 18 months and that oh, wow. was enough to get it pulled off the market
0: wow so where's the fda on this i mean is this is this data this data has been publicly available it's in peer reviewed papers and and you know w- w- this uh, it, it, Why is it only coming out now, I guess I should say, or where's the groundswell about this, and and where's the FDA on this?
1: Well, uh, let me answer uh, the FDA first. Sure. You know, to me, FDA is doing their job and uh, doing it excellently. They're a very tough agency, and the reason this data is available to people like me to look at from a variety of sources is because FDA is so tough and makes the companies report. fDA did a look at the Medicare database um, and found uh, found no excess of deaths but but uh, that 's the difference between clinical trials which FDA enforces uh, excellent reporting on and good methodology on and registries uh, and we know from uh, from the example of uh, estrogen for postmenopausal women thinking it was better for their hearts when it's worse and so on, that uh, registries don't tell the whole story. So so uh, FDA has not said the drug needs to come off the market, not either drug, and I don't think they should because uh, there might be instances where these drugs uh, can and should be used. By valerudin, for example, uh, plenty of places use that uh, for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Uh, and it can be life-saving there, uh, but uh, but but they do uh, FDA in the label for dabigatran uh, lists that uh, the the incidents uh, in, in the clinical trial data in the venous thromboembolism patients uh, there's an excess rate of heart attacks number needed to harm about one in two hundred. That's in the label. Um, as far as why it's coming out now. Uh, or why it's taken this amount of time to come out, uh, you know there's been a lot of excitement about each of these these uh, new oral anticoagulants. And, right. and uh, there are a whole lot of doctors uh, involved in the clinical trials of them, uh, and uh, there's a lot of hoopla and excitement about them. Uh, whittling or, or, or working through the data to prove, as, as Beringer Engelheims own scientists did, that, uh, there's an increased risk of heart attack with the bigotran, uh, compared to warfarin, um, yep. it takes time. And, yep. uh, and, and uh, it's come out now. And, fi- and the other aspect of it is that uh, we have fine alternatives now. The anti-10A inhibitors, of which they're two marketed, that cost the same, uh, and spare brain bleeding the same way dabigatran does, uh, they don't have this heart attack risk. So, So things take time in medicine
0: true. Okay, so then is it an issue? I mean, do you think we're going to see, uh, or would you predict, or would you ask for, I guess, maybe that's the other way to say it, um, some kind of a labeling change, or is this just more of a you know these these drugs have some purpose, but I think maybe your concern given the data and the number needed to harm is the degree at which they 're being used when there 's apparently alternatives that have a different obviously spectrum from a number needed to harm or or should there be a should there be a warning label should there be a uh, you know similar to what 's already um, uh, been put out there
1: well um you know, I'm not expert enough to insist upon a warning label or, or what a warning should look like, uh, because that really depends on, uh, on standards they've used in the cases of other drugs, you know. But, but I think you should drop way down. Look, there are plenty of drugs that, uh, that once we've learned they carry more danger, uh, we just don't use. Uh, and, right. uh, for, uh, meropenem you know is associated with seizures so uh, we use meropenem now uh, in the ICU and and there are plenty of drugs like that and i think the bigotran should uh, should simply fall away unless there's some very special reason uh, reason to use it uh, as far as bivalirudin it it should not be part of uh, it's used uh, Oh, I don't know, maybe somewhere between 30 and 50 percent of centers doing, uh, coronary angioplasty these days, uh, and stent insertion, and I think that should go away to, uh, to a much, much smaller number.
0: How, how new is this data? I mean, do you think there's just simply an issue right now that it, the this this risk that you've described just hasn't been disseminated enough yet so that you know it sort of sounds like what you're advocating you know uh, in a way if if people were aware of this and the centers that are using a lot of these agents would obviously potentially examine that, make make a shift in their use, their formulary you know et cetera Is it just an an information dissemination issue
1: i I think that's a very important part of it uh, It is relatively new. For example, three senior scientists at Bernger Ingelheim, the company that uh, makes the Bigotran that sponsored all its studies, uh, published a, a, a patient-specific meta-analysis in 2013 in a relatively obscure journal, but I reference it, and um, you can find it online, at which they concluded that uh, the likelihood, there's a 40% increased likelihood. Uh, Odds ratio, hazard ratio, 1.4 of having a heart attack if you're taking dabigatran versus if you're taking warfarin. Uh, now, uh, so why why hasn't that gotten out there? Where, well, a couple of reasons. One, there are so many doctors, so many journals carrying uh, pradaxid dabigatran, plain television's carrying it, that uh, that the other message of its danger is not is not uh, propagated, and secondly, gotcha. all of these drugs, all of the new drugs, decrease the amount of bleeding bleeding in the brain, and that's right. a benefit. Uh, the and and we can get to that in a moment if you like, because it's a very interesting mechanism. That's something we've we've learned uh, we've learned I think clinically important. Uh, facts in two ways uh, about medical devices. You don't want to use any of these single-agent inhibitors, and we've learned now that if you can get away without using warfarin and use an anti-10A agent, you'll have less brain bleeding, and we've learned why. But, uh, but the, the uh, new thing is that we have uh, other drugs that will do the same thing, the anti-10A inhibitors. Uh, they all charge the same amount of money, uh, which costs a good deal more than warfarin if you're if you don't have money, right? And, uh, and they are suitable alternatives, so you just don't need to use the dangerous ones. You can use heparin huh. and get the same results that you get with uh, bivalirudin uh, in the uh, in the angioplasty. So,
0: what, what kind of how many direct vomit inhibitors are currently available
1: to prescribe in the U.S.? Um, oral only one, dabigatran, Pradaxa. And uh, intravenous, I think there is uh, bivalirudin and argatroban. Argatriban, argatriban okay. is being used less these days. And they're both uh, very useful, I think, in HIT. So so
0: what do we think then is, or is there, a, is there a proposed mechanism of action where, you know, is this just a scenario that these drugs are causing this in the setting of an abnormal substrate, say, a intravascular device? um or, or is there you know what is the proposed thought process that uh that an uh, anticoagulant is causing such a prothrombotic state in these specific patients
1: well it's uh yes there's abnormal substrate and yes uh it's it's failing to protect rather than uh, causing and and what i'm telling you now gotcha. comes from uh, experts not you know that whom i've read and heard from as opposed to uh, as opposed to research that I've personally done. Gotcha. With the, with devices, it's very interesting. It has to do with the contact inhibition pathway almost certainly. Now, uh, all of us as medical students, residents, pulmonary doctors, our eyes glaze over when we hear contact uh, activation pathway. But, <laughs> but but in fact, uh, this is a clinical example where where we can pay attention to it. If you have an artificial hip, um, you want a good clot uh, when that thing is cemented or not cemented right. in place, simply put right. in place, um, because every time you jiggle or get banged around, you don't want to bleed again there. Right. And uh, the body has this contact uh, activation pathway for clotting, which starts with uh, factor 12 and then factor 11, and then builds up, amplifies in the cascade, by the time it gets down to factor two, uh, which is prothrombin, gets activated to thrombin, and that's what uh, lyses fibrinogen and makes the fibrin clot. Anti-2A, anti-thrombin inhibition is at the very bottom of that pathway. And it turns out when the bigotran was tested as a, as a mechanical heart valve drug, it failed miserably. Uh, the number needed to harm there was 20. There were clots on the valves. There were strokes from that. And they made sure to give so much to Bigotran that they had excess pericardial bleeding in their newly operated mechanical valve patients. Gotcha. So it's not a matter of the patient not being sufficiently anticoagulated. It's gotcha. that, that contact, uh, contact activation pathway Make so much thrombin that the amount you have circulating, well, it's enough to make the pericardium bleed like stink. Is not enough to prevent clots on the valves. Bivalirudin, so far as we know, same thing. They give they give adequate bivalirudin uh, to prevent clots on the catheters, but but the stent, the rate of clotting the stent uh, is four to five times with bivalirudin compared to heparin. Why does heparin work? Uh, why does warfarin work? Uh, because warfarin, you know, inhibits uh, production of effective 2, 7, 9 to ten and 10 down to 20% of what they are normally. So at multiple points higher upstream, you've inhibited the amount of thrombin you're going to make all the way at the bottom. Um, and that's how heparin and warfarin seem to work there. Uh, but, the, but the anti-thrombin drugs that, just block it, the very last step, can't get enough. There, what's going on with dabigatran? The well, these atrial fibrillation patients, a lot of them have coronary disease, too. And uh, they have, as you mentioned earlier, abnormal substrate. And the amount of antithrombin you get with circulating dabigatran is not enough to prevent heart attacks in the unlucky DVT patients and the PE patients, um, and sorry, and the Atrial fibrillation patients who are the bulk of the people who get the uh, bigatran and these these heart attacks so so there are a bunch of doctors who defend the bigotran say, "Whoa, you look at the studies fewer deaths uh, or or not excessive deaths. you look at registries, not excessive deaths with the bigotran and so this, that,
0: it's, a, it's a claim that it's a morbidity, not a mortality
1: well yeah, but then but but what kind of cardiologist says it's okay to have a heart attack if it doesn't kill you? I mean, <laughs> diabetics, two-thirds, you know, first thing, 10% of American adults are diabetic, and two-thirds of diabetics die of cardio- cardiac disease rather than, uh, you know, a quarter of the rest of us. And uh, when diabetics have heart attacks, they're twice as likely to die. And the time you don't want a heart attack is... Uh, is you know when any of us are older, when we're having knee replacement or hip replacement surgery, or some drunk hit us in a car wreck and we have to be in the hospital, right. you you don't want to accumulate you don't want to accumulate uh, an elevated creatinine as you go through your life, and you don't want to accumulate uh, myocardial infarctions either.
0: Now, let me ask you, you've, you've alluded to, you know, because of this concern uh, from the data, obviously, for the direct thrombin uh, inhibitors and the thromboses, but then the use of the 10A inhibitors, um, I know you're very familiar with that data as well. Do we, do you believe we have now the robustness of data and follow-up, et cetera, to be able to safely say that in this scenario, we don't need to be worried about the 10A inhibitors?
1: Well, we don't need to be worried about 10A inhibitors for routine use in myocardial infarctions. But we do need, I think, to be worried about them, uh, not that anyone yet is promoting them, for mechanical devices because of the same problem, that uh, contact activation upstream uh, is going to lead to uh, clots on mechanical devices. And just as an example of that, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, Pregnant women who had mechanical valves were tried on anoxaparin injections because, of course, uh, as you know, warfarin can be right. teratogenic during the first trimester. And the number of strokes were uh, excessive, and that became a uh, black box warning on the anoxaparin, uh, low it's just uh, when it comes to mechanical devices, uh, you can't use single-factor inhibitors. You can't even use an oxyparin, which inhibits two factors, 10A and 2A. But, but as far as uh, myocardial infarctions uh, in use in people with atrial fibrillation and DVT and PE, uh, there's now enormous numbers, and there's no increase with the anti-10As. Why? Best guess, inhibitions further upstream and those unstable coronary plaques that uh, those atrial fib patients and some of the DVT patients are walking around with are good enough to handle uh, that. The the other, to me, uh, fascinating part of, uh, of all these drugs, including dabigatran, is that they do, compared to warfarin, decrease the amount of bleeding in the brain. And the story behind that is, uh, it's scary, but it's very interesting to me. Uh, there's something called the Rotterdam Scan Study. They started doing MRIs of uh, brains of Dutch people in uh, the end of the 90s and uh, they're following them sequentially uh, in this 21st century. And they found that uh, among people aged 60 to 65, something like 15 to 20 percent had, of people who are normal had uh, had signs of small hemorrhage in their brain, and they wow. looked at autopsies of brains, and they found the same thing. By the time you get up to 80, age 80, healthy people walking around something like 30%. So these are called uh, microbleeds, microhemorrhages, and uh, 30% of the healthy 80-year-olds uh, who still have their marbles walking around have them. Well, why is this relevant to these anticoagulants? The brain is full of uh, what we used to call uh, thromboplastin, what we now call tissue factor. In fact, uh, you know, when we were in training, the APTT assay and the PT, the prothrombin time, used either rabbit brain thromboplastin or human brain thromboplastin. Now they use synthesized uh, tissue factor. But the brain's full of that stuff. Uh, which is why brain tumor patients have a high incidence of DVT postoperatively and so on. And it seems like some number of healthy people are having microbleeds in their brain, but they have so much tissue factor that these things are asymptomatic. If you have a ton of them, you, when you get older, you're more likely to get demented, but, right. but, uh, but not hemorrhages. Warfarin now now turned to warfarin, which poisons factors two, seven, nine, and ten. That's why it works so well for cardiac valves. But if you're going to have these micro bleeds in your brain, and you have warfarin on board, uh, you've got enough poisoning of anticoagulation that some of them are going to be uh, going to turn into uh, bigger bleeds, and. Uh, on your leg, when you bang your shins on morphine, you get a big bruise. That's a minor bleed, but in a closed space like the skull, it's right. devastating. It's a big deal, right? <laughs> in, in contrast, you take these single-agent inhibitors, the anti-10As and dabigatran, uh, and... and uh, for the same reason, dabigatran doesn't work in the heart, or and anti-10A's probably won't work on mechanical valves, and enoxaparin won't work well enough on mechanical valves. In the brain, you've got so much tissue factor, you've got a single factor inhibitor, and it simply overwhelms the inhibitor, and you get hemostasis. Gotcha. So uh, these Dutch and the rest of us can uh, can wander around with these microbleeds. So so I think they're very. I mean, in the ideal world, uh, insurance companies, Medicare, and so on would make anti-10A inhibitors as cheap as warfarin, um, and we'd have good ways to monitor them, which we don't have yet, and we'd wholesale shift over. Uh, In the meantime, I think, uh, uh, since we can't afford that, uh, for the people who can't afford it, uh, there should be very tight control of warfarin, um, to limit brain bleeds, and uh, and people should go off the bigotran.
0: So let me ask you then, so what's what's going on at your medical center, or what's happening in your direct practice? Um, are there scenarios where you are still using the direct thrombin inhibitors?
1: Um, so uh, it, it's interesting. So I haven't used the bigotran uh, for some time, since one of the Beringer engelheim scientists told me about their... Uh, Results that he published in the uh, in, in that article I reference about the patient-specific meta-analysis showing the increased bleeds, uh, and when I sent this paper that got published in Chest to a bunch of different general medical journals, I had reviews from I'm sure cardiologists who said I've stopped using this, uh, you know, for this reason, you know, I prefer the other drugs. Uh, okay. In in uh, my center, um, River Oxaban, gets uh, more use because it's once a day, I think. The prices are all the same. Although some of the doctors use uh, use still uh, to trend. Bivalirudin uh, it depends on the hospital. Uh, some of our places use bivalirudin for angioplasty, and others use uh, heparin. I, I don't think the bivalirudin date is the very most recent date it was in New England Journal in early part of 2014 I think the last study um, and then there was another study in Lancet uh June of 2014 so three studies now but uh, but as one cardiolo- interventional cardiologist told me when you come through training and you use bivalirudin all the time uh you know how to use it uh, the last thing you want to do during a a complicated uh, uh, angioplasty on an acutely uh, infarcting or ischemic patient is shift to a different anticoagulant. But that's what all of us have to learn how to do is modify our procedures as more information comes along.
0: Right. Just to clarify, it too, the paper that I think you're referring to uh, that was published by the scientists, the Clemens paper in vascular health risk management,
1: Yes, that's the berger Engelhorn paper. Yep. So that's re- reference eight for those that
0: are then going to uh, read this article and, and to complement the podcast. Um, all right, Bruce. So we've been talking for a little bit. What what haven't we touched on? What what uh, have I missed that I need to be asking you about?
1: Well, I guess uh, I guess how does change happen? Do you know? Uh, yeah. People people used to that uh, the way... There's some famous quote from somebody who said uh, the way medicine changes actually with new information is not that uh, doctors pick up the information and start using it, but rather that the older doctors die and get replaced by new doctors who learn new stuff. (laughs) But but, you know, that wasn't true for aspirin and it's not true for statins either, is it? So so I think... um, I think it's going to be difficult I think if we let if cardiologists do this as they're accustomed to doing things by attrition um the bigger trend will eventually fade away because it's twice a day and there's all this issue with bleeding and their their atrial fibrillation study was tainted but but you know that's a lot of unnecessary heart attacks in the meantime so right. so I think uh, people ought to carry this information and say look um, let's not quibble what registries show. When the regi- when the, the patients in the registry had more money, were healthier to begin with, and couldn't have renal insufficiency or they couldn't take the drug, and so on. Let's just admit there are better drugs that perform the same way otherwise, but don't increase heart attack. But I, but I think uh, you know pulmonary doctors on P and T committees should be out there. People who read chest should be out there. Uh, pushing the hospitals to make these changes. That's uh you know, getting it's like ARDS. Getting people better is a matter of uh you know, increasing survival is incremental stuff. It's not right. huge breakthroughs.
0: It's a game of inches.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Bruce,
0: this is, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, I very much enjoyed reading your, your uh, clinical commentary. And, and for the listeners who uh, have not yet read, uh, read it, I, uh, or not have read it yet, please uh, definitely uh, go uh, read this article and, and see the data uh, and uh, check the references. You'll, you'll see it's a very comprehensive uh, clinical commentary that I think today's podcast added to dramatically. So, uh, Bruce, I want to thank you again for your time. This was fantastic.
1: Well, you're very welcome, Kyle. You do a great job at this. It's been a great addition to CHEST, and I'm, uh, you know, it's a pleasure and an honor to be a part of it.
0: Thanks so much. I appreciate that.